Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That, your weekly podcast where this queer millennial and his friends uh, unpack topics at the top of our mind through the lens of anxiety, depression, chronic illness, grief, politics, and everything in between. Um, today's episode is unpacking politics in your family. So how to talk politics with your family, how to deal with politics around your family, um, knowing that the holiday season is kind of coming up um, uh, very shortly after this podcast is set to be released, whether it's Christmas or another holiday that you celebrate, politics will probably come up at your family table. Um, so we have a super exciting um, episode for you today. Um, I think it's going to be fun. I hope that you have some laughs with us as well as some cries with us. Um, we're going to first jump into our headlines. That's the segment where we unpack one disturbing headline from this week, and then we all weigh in on that headline. Um, after that, we'll do our main topic, which is all about politics and family. So we'll talk about, you know, holiday traditions, arguments we've got into, um, what types of family members we want to deal with, um, and then our strategies on how you can deal with those family members. And then after that, we're going to close out with an interview with uh, Dr. Eric Servini, who's an LGBTQ plus historian and New York Times bestselling author of The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. But before we do that, I have to introduce my lovely, lovely co-hosts. And as you know, it's becoming a tradition here um, where I introduce them about the things that make them feel most insecure within themselves and other people. So first up, no matter how much he quotes the Bible in this podcast, his asshole will still ignite with flaming, dazzling hemorrhoids when he enters any place of worship. Kirk Wilson, welcome to the podcast. God bless. God bless. The only thing more effective than COVID-19 at crippling the human body with clammy hands, loss of taste, and chronic depression, she's the modern American cat lady, Erica Ellis. She's speechless. <laughs> <laughs> From humble beginnings as a homeschooled lad to a shocking rise into the depths of white mediocrity, this man will have you asking, are the straights okay? Welcome, Andrew Nagy. <laughs> They're not Okay. <laughs> Erica, I'm, I'm still not sure if you're recovering from my read or if you just want to jump right into your headline, because I know this episode is going to be a doozy for you. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, my headline is <laughs> five minutes into us waiting for Kirk uh, no. for the podcast to start. Okay. I found out that we were, I was at church. Sorry. He, uh, he was literally in the shower jerking <laughs> off. But um, we... I, my parents called me to let me know that we are putting down our family dog who she'll be 16 late February. So um, if I cry, it's not because anything that these three ass clowns have said is particularly moving or thoughtful. It's because I'm thinking of my sweet little buns and how she's going to be so happy in dog heaven where there's unlimited greenies and belly rubs. <laughs> Well, to me, like, I don't know, you've talked about Chloe on this podcast before, I think, um, right before you went home, like about a year ago or something like that. And I remember you posting a picture of Chloe. I think Chloe might even be on the retro Let's Unpack That Instagram page. I think there's a picture of you and her on there. I think there might be. <laughs> so we definitely pour one out for Chloe on this podcast. And obviously, I'm I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. I know it. That, that just like sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously... Not anything that happens in 2020 is bound to be awful. I found out that one of my close friends has COVID literally 
while I was on the FaceTime <laughs> um, with my family. So, you know, not that like my childhood dog who was very clearly meant to pass at some point sooner rather than later is the worst thing that can happen. Um, and it's not comparable to any of the other losses that people have experienced this year, but um, be grateful for the family that you do have and protect them in any way you can. And that certainly now means um, being smart around COVID precautions, especially because Christmas is in just over a week. And, um, you know, if you haven't made the decision on what you're going to do for the holidays, uh, I'd rather miss out on one holiday than make it my last holiday with that person. So be smart peoples. Yeah. Well, thanks. Also, if at any point during this podcast, you need to jump off, you are more than welcome to do that. Um, surprised you're still here, but I know that that's what the whiskey is for. Yes. <laughs> All right, Andrew, what's your, what's your headline? So I'm going to go with one from Newsweek, but it's been reported across the spectrum. Tucker Carlson. Let me me preface this by saying (laughs) Tucker Carlson is an asshole for choosing to have the same name as my dog, who is also an asshole, but he is my asshole. And Tucker Carlson (laughs) is not my asshole at all. Tucker Carlson mocks Jill Biden's dissertation, calls her illiterate. So a couple of days ago, Ben Shapiro, who is also one of my favorite human beings of all time, good old Benny Shaps, decided <laughs> to go on this fucking Twitter rampage about how Jill Biden is not a real doctor. And he thinks it is incredibly disrespectful to, quote unquote, real doctors that she is putting doctor in front of her name and how stupid that is. And he had all these fucking tweets that he thinks he's like dunking on Jill Biden. For instance, here's one. If you're at dinner and somebody introduces himself as Dr. Smith, you'd be rather upset to learn that he had a doctorate in musicology if you were to suffer a stroke at the table. Clearly, Benny Shapiro does not understand higher education. I I, I don't know what he's getting at. I don't know why this is an issue. Um, He retweeted somebody that writes for the National Review, which just from that name, you probably can understand what political leaning that publication has. Um, This writer, Dan McLaughlin, said in his tweet, Jill Biden has the same degree as Bill Cosby. I don't know what the fuck that guy is insinuating with that, but he's clearly trying to lessen Jill Biden's accomplishments in life. All of this is completely sexist. So then we get into Tucker Carlson, who went on one of his famous rants and said that she has status anxiety and has to call herself a doctor when she's not a doctor because she's not a medical professional, even though she does have a doctorate degree. Um, He said that she's illiterate, again, highly sexist, and he likened her degree and that her calling herself doctor for having that degree to like calling herself Dr. Pepper. Tucker Carlson has spent an entire life building his career on being the most disrespectful piece of shit he could possibly be. And this is probably the most piece of shit disrespectful thing he could possibly do. And like most obvious, most obviously piece of shit. Like, yeah, like number one, I think it's something like less than 2%, less than 1.5% of people have 
actual PhDs or something like that. And regardless of what field it is, that's an incredible accomplishment. It's also an incredible accomplishment for someone to be able to get that degree in the first place and then continue to work in that degree and have that degree produce value year after year after year. And even as the second lady of the United States and now as the first year of the United States, I now as like a, you know, a Jill Biden stan and, and as, you know, somebody who, who, spent a lot of time in, in the Willow Grove area, which is where she grew up, which is, you know, 20 minutes from where Kirk and I grew up. I, like, like Jill Biden is, is in a way like a hometown hero, you know, because like whether what, regardless of what side of the political aisle you kind of sit or stand on, like there's an intense level of like Philadelphia pride uh, that comes with a lot of, of people from Philadelphia when they are successful. Like, it's just sort of like, hey, that's kind of cool or that's somebody that we like. Like, the, she leaned on that a lot during the campaign. I just find this, like, attack, like you said, Andrew, obviously sexist, but also just so, like, incredibly stupid like an incredibly worthless like what what was the point there was an entire op-ed about it and and i forget what newspaper it was the wall street journal uh, editorial report or i don't remember who exactly wrote it but what are we doing here you know his name is joseph epstein so i was gonna say andrew your his tucker situation came from this article that was written by this guy last week or this this past week i think and that's where this all this is coming from and that the headline actually is so so Ben Shapiro stole that which is funny is is there a doctor in the White House question mark not if you need an MD and I just think it's funny because it's like this isn't the first person that has a doctorate in something other than the medical field like, like that's what's the weird I was like this could have been written about anybody period it's just very weird and, and obvious that it's about a woman in a powerful position that you know, they don't agree with this guy, by the way, Joseph I mean, Epstein. I mean, I mean, can we just, can we pause for a second? Like Dr. Martin Luther King was not a medical doctor. Right. And, <laughs> like, and, and right, all, like right. you've had this conferred on you. So like Ben Shapiro in one of his many tweets about this says, I speak as a jurist doctor. No lawyer should be called doctor. It's idiotic. This is a personal choice. Like if I, Ben Shapiro, yeah. because he has a JD, doesn't want to call himself a doctor. That's that fine. is his personal choice. And if, if, Jill Biden wants to because it signals, you know, her accomplishments in life or whatever it is for her. It doesn't matter what it is for her. It's her personal choice to do that. And Ben fucking Shapiro, Mr. Facts don't care about your feelings, is having a whole lot of feelings about this. And so is everyone else on the right. I mean, just looking at the Ground News app, there are so many fucking articles written about this nothing burger like no one gives a fuck why are they why are they bringing this up why is this news and i don't think jill biden is running around saying call me dr jill biden that's the other no. part too i no, actually have their instagram handle yeah like. <laughs> i actually had this conversation with a friend of mine um with this week when this came up and i was curious it's it's the same topic but i'm curious you guys thought like i have friends whose parents were doctors and i grew up with when growing up where they were dentists or doctors or whatever they were a doctor they were referred to as doctor and their wife was mrs or their husband was mr and we sometimes would get flack because like no call my dad doctor this and i would be like well he's not my doctor like i know him as mr so-and-so like i'm not so I would call him doctor because that's what they wanted me to call their dad. But I, I like, I, I don't know. I think there is parts, there's places where um, even real doctors that they don't need to be called doctor all the time. That's just my, like my opinion, like for kids to call my friend's dad, a doctor, 
I don't have an issue with it, but I also think like, I know them so personally, like I feel weird calling him Dr. Dunn. You know what I mean? Like I think there's, and he is a, re- and he's a real air quotes doctor because he's a medical doctor. But I do think to your point, Andrew, it is a choice. I think it should be, the, it should be the person's choice though. Like who got the doctorate. Yeah. Completely. Like, why, why are we letting the great, mind that is ben shapiro dictate who we should call doctor and not call doctor like who gives a fuck <laughs> like who gives a fuck about no. doctor who gives a fuck about doctors who gives a fuck about ben shapiro but you know what? i just like well, they're also mad they're also mad that she's working that's a whole other issue you know what? and that was the teaching. thing that i wanted to touch on is the fact that I like literally forgot all my sadness because like this makes me so angry. If a woman does something, it's not enough or it's too much. And that's what we're seeing with Dr. Jill Biden is, oh, she's not enough of a doctor, but she's doing too much by working while being first lady, which by the way, she has the experience of being not a first lady, but she was, do they call them second ladies? I don't really know. Yeah. And yeah, 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 they do. Yeah. So it's, you know, she's had this experience. She knows what she's doing. She is qualified in every aspect that she needs to be qualified and then some. So meanwhile, I believe Ben Shapiro's wife is again, air quotes, actual yeah. doctor. <laughs> Um, who apparently can't get wet, but that's more of a Ben Shapiro problem. Yeah, that's that's not her problem. We're not going to blame her for that. <laughs> it could be a medical issue. We don't know. And it's like, <laughs> okay, bro, like, congrats. Like, you should lift up her profession and Both. her achievements, as well as Dr. Jill Biden's, as well as anyone who pursues a PhD. It is difficult. It is time-consuming. And you could work, you could slave away for years only for something to get flipped on you and you have to start all over again. So in a lot of the guys that I've been seeing who have been, you know, saying like, Oh yeah, like she's not a real doctor. I'm like, okay, asshole. First of all, you, I watched you cheat off of me in our freshman year intro to accounting class and they were different exams. So like, if you're going to sit on a high horse, make sure that it's not a fucking little toy ass pony little bitch like I just I get frustrated and I I think that's what comes with being a woman with or just a woman like that's it you're too much too little not the right one it's it's frustrating and it's ridiculous that we have to have this conversation in 2020 yeah I mean imagine if we had a woman president or a um a, a woman vice president I, I don't really know how old Kamala Harris's kids are does she have them I, I don't even know to be honest but um she's she stepkids I think she has stepkids yeah. okay okay so diff- different type but I think but, you know imagine if there was a, a a woman president or woman vice president or even somebody you know who was higher up in the cabinet or the president's kind of inner cabinet of, of closest closest confidants like for them to spend time with their family they'd be completely criticized for Mm -hmm. yet Donald Trump brings his entire family like into the fucking White House and they're all special and senior advisors that have more access than like people who are qualified to do the job. I mean, that's like saying Eric, who's joining our podcast shortly, is not qualified to be a doctor because he got his PhD in 
history. Like, like th- that's not like the guy still went to Harvard. He worked really, really hard. Like you can have your opinion on like, if you think like, a medical doctor, that's fine. Like I personally, like, uh, like it, that's because society has made this word doctor. It means you're a medical. I know medical doctors in my life who will not refer to dentists as doctors because they think they're beneath them. I think it's a whole oh, situation with that uh, whole world. Um, but we, with the word doctor to me at first doesn't mean you have a doctor. It means you're a, a medical doctor. That's just because what it's become. Right. I right. think that and people can't disconnect it and, and I get it. And arguably maybe it is harder to, for that than it is to get your doctor in education. It may be, but who cares? Like she has the highest form of education in that area. That's amazing. Yeah. Let it be. And also I work in corporate America where every idiot who goes and takes like a three week class and gets a certificate (laughs) puts three or four letters after their name and their email signature. Like, like that person. Okay. You don't need those fucking credentials. That shit means nothing. (laughs) But again, they are entitled to do that. They are entitled to do that. Like they're they're fully free. I, I think this like, all this is is just straight up sexism. That's all this is. It is. I do want to say this guy that wrote this article, the Wall Street Journal, he wrote it for shock factor 110%. Because if you read the article, it is ridiculous. It's like if you wanted to get a point across about having a discussion about the term doctor, you wouldn't have gone about it this way. It's not, he, was no, he had no interest in doing that. He just wanted to be an asshole. And if you go back to a lot of his work, which goes back to like the 70s, it's like super homophobic, super racist, super sexist. And so it's not shocking at all once you dig deep into like his um, repertoire. So. I think that's kind of where it stems from. And of course, the, I mean, liberals, we ate it up and got pissed. So it did what he wanted it to do. And then the right, of course, it just keeps reusing it. And that's yeah. what Ben Shapiro yeah. lives yeah. He, he lives to do, is he thinks he's owning right. us by making us talk about it. Yes. And it's like, no, 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 dude, we're just discrediting you more by calling out your your complete form of sexism. I just, like, I like Dr. Jill Biden is going to be a fantastic first lady. She has charisma on camera. She has watched Michelle Obama do this for eight years. She also watched Melania Trump, uh, you know, go from a person who posed very explicitly on the internet to a uh, first lady, which again, we're all pro-sex work on this on this podcast. We're all pro-pornography on this podcast. But if this is the if, if this is the standard that people like Ben Shapiro are going to hold women in politics to why, why would he, he say not Shapiro it, is it what Shapiro oh Shapiro. I say Shapiro because that's what my best friend's name is Shapiro oh. just call uh, Benny, okay. Benny Shaps yeah whatever you know what fuck Benny, I don't care if Benny, he's not Benny gonna Shaps. say it, if he's not gonna put doctor before Biden I'm gonna call him Shapiro yeah, and not Shapiro fuck his name is. I love it so. and I that, love it. that shows the hypocrisy on the right and again like if if you want to get naked right. on the internet or you want to get naked for money like that is 100% your right and, and go for it and I have no problems with Melania Trump doing that I have no problems with having a first lady that posed nude like that's cool do it yeah i don't think melania herself is cool but that shows the hypocrisy where there's all of this this bullshit about sex work on the right and and people being sex positive and everything but they sweep all that under the rug for melania they sweep all of trump fucking banging porn stars 
under the rug. And again, if you want to bang porn stars or be a porn star, it doesn't matter. But the hypocrisy is what we're having an issue with. And then to get fake upset just because you're trying to generate clicks about Jill Biden calling herself doctor, but you're not going to apply your own supposed morals to Melania and Trump. It's fucking bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. I mean, imagine if Melania was... A doctor in something, this would never have come up. They would no. have been okay. Oh, she's they, a doctor would have, and... they would have never stopped fucking talking about that. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. It would have been great because it would have been. Yep. But like, that's it's ridiculous. I bet Dr. Jill Biden, I bet she cares about Christmas. <laughs> I know she does. <laughs> she every, does. every white woman in Willow Grove loves Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's enough headlines, to be honest. I'm, I'm honestly good yeah. with it just being a rant for Jill Biden. So if you guys are good, we can take a quick break and then uh, we'll jump back into it. This episode of Let's Unpack That is sponsored by Therapy Notebooks. Uh, Therapy Notebooks make a ton of different notebooks that help people deal with their anxiety, their depression, their grief, everything in between. They actually recently reached out to us. Uh, They sent me a free notebook. It's called the Anti-Anxiety Notebook. Um, And it's been super helpful for me to process my anxiety, especially before a session in therapy. Um, Super simple to use. So it's super helpful. My anti-anxiety notebook is is kind of my way of processing my feelings and emotions all in the moment. I think that you guys would really like one, especially if you suffer from anxiety or depression. Um, It's a good way to sort of just kind of use cognitive behavioral therapy in practice of writing in order to kind of suss out your thoughts and feelings. So super grateful to partner with them. And I genuinely don't think that I would recommend this product to you guys if I did not think that it was something that would benefit you if you struggle from anxiety or depression. So if you want the anti-anxiety notebook, just go to Therapy Notebooks on Instagram. It's at therapy notebooks for this month you can actually get a code which is hi there paul five and you will save five dollars on a notebook from therapy notebooks that's not just the anti-anxiety notebook one it's any other notebook that they have so once you get it let me know how you like it we can hold each other accountable to using it so send me a dm thanks so much and thank you to therapy notebooks for sponsoring let's unpack that All right, and we're back. And this is our main segment of the episode where we are talking family and politics. So um, when your great aunt makes a comment about Dr. Jill Biden at Christmas dinner, feel free to you know reach out to her, challenge her beliefs. But um, the holidays are coming and whether it's a virtual Zoom meeting or an in-person gathering you shouldn't be doing, someone in your family is going to bring up politics. Plus, we're getting vaccinated soon and you're going to start seeing family members sometime in 2021. So it's coming whether you want it or not. Um, so now part of what we need to do, kind of the main message of this podcast or this particular episode of the podcast is to talk about our growth, check our privilege and ensure we're having the tough conversations while still protecting our mental health. We want to be able to help you to do that. So we are talking politics and family. And we have three questions that we're going to ask everybody to answer. Um, and I hope that it generates some ideas for you all of what you can do to manage your anxiety around your family and talk with them about it. Um, First thing, getting a little bit juicy. The question is, when was the last time you had a tough time communicating a political or personal belief with a family member or somebody close to you that's kind of like family? So 
obviously there was a lot going on with the election. I think all of us have kind of had some of those like memories and feelings sort of stirred up and, and we get that sort of feeling of anxiety where we are kind of, I find it very crippling um, for me is where I'm trying to make my point, but I feel like somebody isn't listening to me. But I thought that by us sort of reflecting on our own times, we would help people maybe find a situation that they can also relate to. So um, I'll have Andrew go first because I know his is, prepared and I can tell Kirk is racking his brains for what he's going to say <laughs> without revealing names. All two of Kirk's brains. <laughs> he has two brains? I mean, that's great. <laughs> you said he's racking his brains like he has oh. multiple. Like, have you spoken to Kirk? He barely has one. <laughs> oh my God. So Andrew, why don't you go first? When was the last time you had a tough time communicating a political or personal belief with a family member? I would say it was probably a year ago. And and that's because it's been really tough to see family this year. Um, so it was right around this time last year at Christmas time. Um, I remember all of us were together for Christmas breakfast and this is extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins. And a lot of my family is it, they're, it's weird. Like they're kind of in the middle of some issues where they, they had, we're all talking about recycling and the climate and they all have gardens and they all kind of recognize that there's maybe some issues with the climate and we should be cleaner. And they, they try to grow their own food and, and use products with sustainable packaging and stuff, which is all great. They're all pretty much still climate change deniers. So try to wrap, your head around that. I guess it's because just the rhetoric that the party they vote for puts out. I don't know. So like you see the green leaf on the package and you're like, this is probably, yeah, they're they're always buying organic food. And like, part of this is like, I I've had some conversations with them where it's like, you realize like the organic food industry is still a huge industry. That's worth billions and billions of dollars. And a lot of their marketing claims are marketing claims. And it's, it's a lot of those terms are unregulated that they use naturally on a package means literally nothing. They can say that for anything they want. Um, and they, so I've had those sorts of conversations where I'm like, you're spending a lot of money on nothing, but their heart's in the right place with these things. They're trying, but then you wonder like, okay, but they don't think we should pull back on using fossil fuels and all this other stuff. So I went on this rant where um, I know this is an issue or a topic that's also near and dear to Erica's heart. We talked about this a couple of days ago in our, our group chat where I was saying that the current climate change conversation is designed by corporations through lobbying in the 70s and the 80s. The corporations basically lobbied Washington and put out a lot of ad material like saying, okay, there is pollution problems. There are, there is climate change problems, but it's the individuals, it's the people that need to do things and change their habits in order to fix those problems. So in the seventies, I think it was 1971, the ad council put out this famous ad. It's known as the crying Indian ad. It's this, this, person who was not even Native American. The actor wasn't even Native American and he's crying because of litter on the road. And that's where like anti-littering campaigns came from. And those signs that say like $300 fine, if you litter came from and all that. And that basically takes all the burden off of corporations and puts it on individuals, but it's all bullshit because 
those same corporations are still putting all of their products in plastic packaging that is 100% new material. It's not from recycled material. And those bottles that are then recycled either get thrown out because they're recycled improperly because the recycling facilities have too much recycling to go through and they can't get rid of it fast enough, or they're shipping it over to Asia and then Asian countries buy it and turn it back into raw materials. But now in the last couple of years, Asian countries have too much recycling coming from the developed world and they're stopping taking the recycling in. So it's all piling up and it's basically all getting thrown out anyway. And then the regulations in the, in those second and third world countries are are nowhere near what they are in the developed world. So a lot of that stuff gets thrown out. And I think the hypocrisy comes in where last year, person of the year was Greta Thunberg and the right had a massive hard on for her and was so angry about her going around to the developed world saying it was on the developed world to change a lot of the world. And they were saying the numbers are correct. The, the developed world pollutes less than the developing world. That is true, but it's still on the developed world as the people with all the money and all the power right. and yeah. all the influence to continue to influence the rest of the world and change the direction the world is going in. And ultimately, that plastic that ends up in that gigantic trash pile in the Pacific Ocean, that is still plastic that came from America and then went to Asia and then got thrown out. Or originated in Asia because of Western developed world corporations manufacturing in developing countries and it with less regulations where it doesn't matter if stuff gets dumped and, you know, you can't do that in America. So they outsource it all to another country where it's way cheaper because they're not dealing with those regulations. So ultimately the problem still lies with the developed world. And that was my rant that I went on and they were all like, uh, are you sure about that? And I'm like, a hundred percent. Like none of this is a secret. But that's the thing. They, they, they don't even know enough yeah. Yeah. to, to, to react or respond to you. That's what I find most frustrating. About yeah, that scenario. Because they, they have bought that whole thing is like, Oh, well, if you buy organic and you have a little garden out back and you buy uh, pasture raised meat, like that's the thing that's going to fix it. If literally everybody in the world did that. Okay. But that's not going to happen because of the corporations. Coca-Cola still wants you to buy Coke in a plastic bottle. That's not going to change. And then they say, well, if we have to do it this way, well, people are going to lose their jobs because yeah, uh, it's going to yeah. be too expensive for too us. Expensive. Forbid, the CEO take it. A, right. Yeah. God forbid the CEO take a pay cut. Yeah. That's a difficult conversation to have with family members. Yeah. It, it, because it is so based on the rhetoric and literally decades and decades of it's on us to to drive less or buy electric cars. It's on us to change our buying habits. Well, that's it doesn't happen. It's not going to work. Like it's on the companies to start changing their packaging and to start changing their manufacturing processes. And, you know, if that makes things a few dollars more expensive and takes a hit to corporate profits, like I'm all for that. Yeah. Raise the price of your goods. Government yeah. can raise, you know, like the minimum wage. <laughs> 
like everybody's salaries can be impacted. The whole thing. It's so frustrating when people don't see that everything is connected, but I feel like I've talked a lot. So I'm sorry, Erica or Kirk. I don't know if you guys want to weigh in. I just, I'm hot. I'm hot. So the reason why Andrew said this is close to home for me is because I, I am all about um, sustainability when it comes to the clothing that we purchase. And I've actually had conversations with my own family because my sisters like, you know, Fashion Nova, H&M, Zara, these notorious um, fast fashion companies. And I'm just like, and my mom is just, if she wants it, she will purchase it. Um, but for example, my mom has half of the closet that she shares with my dad and then the entirety of my walk-in closet filled with clothes. Um, and she donates entire trash bags worth of clothing pretty much monthly. Um, and so I've tried to have the conversation like, okay, well, what if we stopped buying, started shopping in our own closets, um, you know, try to stop buying like 20 packs of white t-shirts because white t-shirts have no secondary life. Like they are not taken in by a lot of thrift stores um, or donation centers. And they were just like, no. (laughs) And uh, it's hard. It's hard to ask someone to do something that changes their lifestyle or Um, that I think on the surface seems economically um, unfeasible or just like cumbersome, I guess. Uh, And I think that's where a lot of the pushback that we always get comes from is the fact that they just don't want to do it. And if they accept that you're right, then they have to change their life in a material way or very uncomfortable way or just accept that they play a role in something that's terrible. Um, and I also think that, at least for me, I get preachy about it. And I'm, I will be completely honest. I have plenty of things in my closet that are from these fast fashion companies. Um, I used to just buy things because I liked how they looked in my closet, not on my body, but in my closet. Um, and so I think that when you do have those conversations, it's always better to admit your fault or what way that you're complicit in this um, and just the small things that you've done to change that. Um, I I think it makes it more relatable and I think it makes it seem less like, you know, you're on your high horse about something and more like, hey, like I do this too. And this is a way that I've changed it that's super attainable and super easy to do. And it's you can even see a measurable change in it. Um, and I think that's when things go well, but there are just some things that people don't want to accept. And if they think they're doing the right thing and you tell them, no, you're not, that's where it really gets difficult. Um, like for example, Andrew's family going out of their way to try to buy organic, even though most people know that that's completely a farce um, in their heads, they're, doing the most right thing that they can do, um, no pun intended, but in reality, it's, it's not, it's not enough. And I think that's just hard for people to accept. So they get defensive and sometimes they get mean and nasty. 
what hangs me up is it's hard to talk to these people individually because again, like, I don't believe it's on us as individuals. You know, we have to change the system and we have to change the corporations because the, the corporations are telling us through the governments and through other means like, oh, well, we do have to do things, but it's on you to do it. At the same time, they're still selling us the marketing campaigns that we need new genes every season. You know, and it's also a very privileged thing to be able to be environmentally conscious. Like, for instance, raw denim uses way less water to manufacture than the washed denim you buy at Kohl's. So a, a pair of Levi's at Kohl's is $35 on sale. You could go to a boutique in Philadelphia and buy a pair of jeans for $200. And it's, you know, a small batch run. They don't have jeans left over and you go get them tailored and hemmed and then you have a pair of jeans for the next 10 years. But that's not the way our world is designed. And we're all pretty privileged to be able to make decisions like that. Your average person can't go and buy a $200 pair of jeans and then wear it for the next 10 years. Like that's just not the way our system is designed. I find it so interesting that they're just knowing what I know, and I know nothing about your family, but from what you've said about your family, um, I think it's interesting that they even do what you say they do like this. I don't know many conservatives that care even that even that I think they think the whole plastic thing is bullshit and having, they would never have a farm all that kind of stuff. I feel like that's very interesting that they believe that. And at the least bit, it's very mind blowing to me. And, and like, do they not realize like plastic is made from petroleum? It's a petroleum product. So like, right. You know, they all think we should be using more oil, more fossil fuels. <laughs> I think you'd lose this conversation right here. This like past 10 minutes, you would lose like 90% of the liberals. I know just because yeah. no, no one's going to do this. Like it sounds, and I, I don't, I need, and we're all, I know we're all agreeing with this, but like, it's like, and even in my priority list of like what I want people to do, this is like very low on my total pole, just because it's just seems so unachievable um, from this, what we're sold this climate change, not climate change is this, this what we're supposed to do to fix climate change, which is what Andrew is saying. It's like, don't use plastic, all this kind of stuff. And everyone thinks they're making such a big difference, but you're, you, you are, but everyone needs to be doing it. Like everyone needs to, then if we tell people to stop shopping this way, everyone needs to do it to make an impact on the system. And I think you just lose so many people that aren't going to do that because of your point of the, um, how much it costs to, to do so. And then also like, and this sounds so stupid, but like, I am in my head, I'm like, I don't want to wear the same pair of jeans for 10 years. Like that's most people, t even this like, you know, changing a fashion that we're sold every year. Yeah. Like oh, there's a lot to it that is um, culturally driven that is issues all over the board. But I think, um, I don't know. I think it's a, definitely a larger discussion, but like, how do we get everyone to get on the same page back? I think it scares people away when you start talking about it, which I think is the point, which yeah. is like interesting. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you're right on. And that like segues into kind of what my story is um, around kind of tough conversations like with people. And, and I've shared a lot on this podcast of, of tough conversations. I probably shared the one I would have shared last week where I talked about, you know, family members kind of denying COVID, but I, I do want to kind of circle back to the, the, COVID sort of issue um, of just sort of like people not willing to accept a like 
different reality, like not willing to look at things and put things in context, I think is like a very, a very challenging piece of what any of our listeners are going to to have when they're talking with people, but also even just between all of us, like when we're having those conversations too with people, like Kirk said, it's, it's not just people on the right. It is ingrained in our, in our culture of, of culture of waste. But the one I kind of want to circle back to is like this analogy of there's a 9-11 happening every day because of COVID. It's for some reason not working with the people who invoke 9-11 all the time for every single argument. And I just don't know what to do. And I feel like trying to contextualize that with people this Christmas is saying we are having seven 9-11s every single week, minus the towers falling. That's how many people are dying. And we're also getting long-term effects. And I don't know how, because I know that this is going to happen to somebody else. Like, But I have family members with like 9-11 tattoos on their bodies that have nothing to do with 9-11. And I just don't know how to navigate this conversation, but it's like every single time I see somebody post something like this, I want to scream like, why are you invoking 9-11 when a man armed with a knife is killed by police officers? But you can't also acknowledge like the tragedy of COVID-19 that over 305,000 Americans have died. On 9-11, I, I remember I texted you guys. I, I, I think that was the first time people had started using it I think it's a perfectly fine analogy to make. And to your point, I don't think it's working anymore to, to that audience. I thought of it as like, okay, this audience like really relates to this tragedy, which is obviously yes. every American can agree with is a horrible tragedy. However, they're completely on average neglecting this other massive tragedy that's been happening for now 10 months. Um, so, and at that point, I don't think it was like a 9-11 a day, but it was 200,000 people have been killed. I don't know. It's not working. I think the moment you use it, unfortunately, it does triggers that person. And now they're now they're going to use that against you because I had people in my life who kind of came at me when I posted some stuff that day. But like, how dare you use this day to politicize COVID with 9-11? And I was like, that's not the point. The point is that, you know, this is this is happening this this many people died like why why do we compare how people died like why do we value how people died over other people how they died because it works better for your narrative or because it's um an enemy that you think is a common em- enemy well covid-19 is a common enemy of the world right now <laughs> i don't know why we can't all acknowledge that and it was a preventable tragedy yeah in many ways 911 was as well And it was also completely unexpected, just like 9-11 was. Like, there are parallels to this. I mean, we know why. I mean, we can all sit and say, we know why. It's because, you know, an outside, it was a terror attack. Like, I know people in my life who had bumper stickers as kids or as teenagers on their car that said a happy American is a dead terrorist. Like, that's bizarre. Like, of course, I don't love terrorists, but like, I'm not like thinking about it every day. You know, it's funny. So I have nothing to do, clearly, COVID. And I've been trolling men on Tinder. And I've really been enjoying it. Um, And this one guy was like, oh, well, um, like, yeah, like COVID's bad, but at least these people get to say bye to their families, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I guess (laughs) not really. You can't go to the hospital. And he was like, well... It's not like 9-11 was any one person's fault. I would, And he was basically like, it was just a terrorist. And I was like, first of all, you can't just say, 
oh, it was only these outside forces because nothing happens in this country's soil that the government does not have some liability towards. And that's on period. Like you can't just be like, oh, it was a freak of nature. Yes, bad things can happen, but the degree to which it spreads and festers is completely on the government. You look at Katrina and they drop the ball. People were literally shitting on the turf of the Superdome. I have family who was shitting on the turf of the Superdome. So when people are like, ooh, 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 well, that's completely different. No, it's not. Your government failed you in 2001. Your government failed you in 2007. Your government failed you in 2008. And your government is failing you in 2020. So you should be pissed about that. Agree. <laughs> I Like, mic drop. <laughs> Yeah, I agree 100% with what Erica said. And and Kirk, I think you brought up a really good point about the value of a death in America. Like in America, we often speak so much about the value of human life and how what separates us from quote unquote them is that we value life. I think it's the other way around where we value how somebody dies more than how somebody lived in a lot of ways. We can see that in the abortion debate where in an unborn fetus, that life means so much to the right wing. But then if, if that fetus was born and born into poverty and is now needing assistance or the mother needs assistance, fuck them. That life has no value at that point. And if that person died in poverty, if that baby died in poverty or grew to be a child and, and went to jail because of the life they lived, that life, and then that subsequent death means nothing. If they got to a point where they have mental health that is completely untreated and they're in the middle of the street in Philadelphia brandishing a knife and having a mental health episode and they get gunned down by police, that death and that life means nothing. In fact, it's an offense to people. They hate it. They don't want to think about it. But those people that died on 9-11, you know, it's around 3,000 people, but that is multiplied by 10 times. Like we, we talk about 9-11 as if millions of us, millions of Americans died that day. And that's not the case, but we assign so much more value to those lives dying. And we assign so much more value, but also not to the lives of American soldiers that then died in Afghanistan. We'll pick out individual soldiers that did something heroic, you know, special forces members that died fighting, you know, wave after wave of Taliban fighters on the side of a mountain somewhere, but then completely ignore the thousands and thousands of rank and file infantrymen that, that died or came back with missing limbs and and with horrible PTSD from useless fucking wars that are still going on. 20,000 in Afghanistan. 20,000 people yeah. came back wounded. Or killing other lives in other countries, which I know apparently other lives in other countries don't matter for whatever reason because they're exactly. not human, I guess. 100,000 Afghan uh, civilians. 800,000 yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. 800,000 that are around the world. I think that's the problem is is the, the COVID deaths, the people dying to COVID... Mm -hmm. It's just the price of doing business for America. It is. And these people buy into it. And I just can't help but feel because on 9-11, everyone watched the towers fall over and over and over and over again for years. Take one camera 
into a COVID room. Take one camera into a COVID unit, into an ICU right now. Like the things that people would see, it would be absolutely horrified. It sounds like five, 10, 15 tubes coming out of people's bodies, like hooked onto a million machines. Think about our entertainment. There have been so many movies made about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and 9-11 and like high, high caliber movies that have won Oscars and all kinds of awards and the best directors and the best actors like that's what our movies surrounding 9-11 and our TV shows surrounding 9-11 are. Of course, there's going to be probably movies about 2020 and COVID and there's been disaster movies before, but what do we, what do we do with disaster movies? They're all B movies. It's the rock, you know, hanging from a helicopter out of a skyscraper or they're like sort of schlocky horror films. We just do not value the way people are dying this year. It's a, kind of a big joke and it's just kind of like eh, whatever to us it was the same thing with with hurricane katrina right right i think two buildings falling from the sky is just so awesome you know what i mean like it's not normal mean, yeah and neither is this but it's not the same picture it's not you know what i mean so i think it's it's never gonna be that or anything of that extent and it's been going on for so long that it's so now it's so like normal like, I don't think there's ever going to be, even though there's more people dying, there's more people dying now than there were in March. Um, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to be, I, these people are still calling it the cold. I saw like three different places today, people calling it the cold. It's just like insane. The next question that I have for you guys is what type of family member would you rather deal with for a holiday dinner? And I'm going to give you four options. Okay. So there are four different types of people that I would say I have categorized as people that sit down at the, the Christmas dinner table. Number one is the polite racist. That's the person who makes off-color comments, stereotypes, ignorant comments. They don't realize that what they're saying is probably offensive. So, you know, it's sort of like, oh, those, you know, blah, 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 coming over from blah, blah, blah. Like, it's that kind of person. Like, maybe after a couple glasses of wine, they start to let it out. The next one after the polite racist is the freedom defender. They are the angry, they're the passionate person. They still deny the results of the elections. They constantly feel like Washington is, you know, getting nothing done, but their party is going to be the one that gets something done. And they're like that kind of completely angry person that comes into dinner looking for a fight. The next one is the unengaged or the disillusioned. They don't want to talk about politics. They avoid conflicts. Maybe they don't always vote either way. They're sort of the one that is like, yeah, like, I know what you're talking about. They probably maybe agree with your politics just because they want to see themselves out of the conversation. And then after the unengaged or the disillusioned, you have your twin. So the person that you identify with most, maybe to a fault, how do you challenge and sort of check that beliefs of those persons? So if you guys each pick one um, of who you would rather eat dinner with or sit next to at the Christmas dinner table, the polite racist, the freedom defender, the unengaged or the disillusioned or the twin. Andrew, who would you pick? I think I would pick, just based on my family, I would pick the unengaged or the disillusioned. Because I feel like there's sort of an undercurrent with the cousins where there's a lot of us like that, or they're closeted sort of in the center or even maybe a little bit left. And they don't want to come out at when the full family is together because 
the the boomer faction among us is so loud in in our family events um most of the the millennial generation and the younger generation just kind of sits there and nods along and is like okay so i'd rather sit next to one of my cousins and when a comment is made you can kind of shoot them a knowing glance and you're like oh yeah it figures it figures aunt so-and-so would say that i like that erica who would you sit with the polite racist and (laughs) knew it Aren't you the polite racist? No, that's Kirk. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> oh, off. I knew you were going to say that. Um, Only because it's like, for me, it's just like another day, like, especially knowing the dynamics of my family. Everyone is very Southern polite until they're not. Like, there's always some point, like, my mom's side is a little bit more Southern polite than my dad's side. My dad's side is very upfront. They're very blunt people. Um, but like the polite racists will like say something like, oh, those blacks, not that anyone, any of my family could stand on that hill, but I'm assuming I'll marry a white man based off of literally all of my dating habits. And I, it's just one of those things where like, I like to meet, like rude politeness with rude politeness because again my family is southern and we have pretty much like mastered that and so I just like going toe-to-toe with people and feeding them their own bullshit I think I really do live in an echo chamber so anytime that I get to challenge people I literally get like a little lady boner for it or as Kirk thinks my vagina gets hard the context is we discovered context. the other day that Kirk has no idea how the female anatomy works oh my gosh no I, I think I'm right I think the anatomy is wrong actually <laughs> we're gonna be honest I would agree Kirk who would you anyway. rather sit down with at Christmas so, dinner the issue is the polite racist. I feel like I know too many of, so it's boring. Like I feel like I do that enough. The, um, the unengaged person I'm so sick of, like, I feel like I've also know too many of those <laughs> and I don't hate them, but it's just frustrating for me because it's like, I would almost rather you just be hardcore, the complete opposite of me. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's, it's exhausting. Cause, cause they throw punches and you're like, no, you can't throw a punch when you don't yeah, care. Fuck off, like you gotta, you, know? like, pick or <laughs> you literally don't even vote. <laughs> yeah. And then, right. You literally don't vote. So like, and that's fine. But like, don't then say you're, oh, well, I am a Republican. Like when they're drunk, I am a Republican, you know, I'm like, no, you're not like you, you don't vote. Like you're not anything. Like I don't walk around saying I'm a Democrat yeah. if I didn't vote. But anyway, I, I like those people, but so it's, I wouldn't pick them. Um, and then someone like me, I don't do well. It's like, I don't want another gay coming to Christmas dinner. Like, I don't want that either. Like, I want to be the gay. I want to be the star of Christmas dinner. So I can't do like, unless it's like, we're going to hook up. But so I can't do that. So family? I would pick the freedom. <laughs> oh, well, like, I don't know. Oh, I mean, oh. I feel like a cousin. Or, I like a cousin or something. That doesn't make it better. Okay. So... <laughs> A freedom, what are they called? Freedom fighter? The freedom, freedom defender. Freedom, freedom fighter, defender. sure. Yeah. I picture, this is who I pick, because I picture it as like Judge Janine, you know, from Fox News. 100%. Like, so it'd be like an aunt um, that I don't come across that met those people that much. 
to be honest, and I would like to. Um, I'm privileged in the sense of my family politically, my at least my small my sisters and their significant others and my parents and my nieces and nephews or whatever, that whole bubble that I'll see, um, we're all pretty much super similar. So I don't really ever have the opportunity to fight about politics at, at dinner. Um, and I would like to, so I would pick um, the, the freedom person. Cause I think it'd be interesting to actually challenge somebody who is completely delusional. Um, so I'll be coming to Andrew's Christmas dinner. <laughs> I will also be in attendance. Kirk and I will. <laughs> well, so the thing is, is, is at least for me, I get a bit of a break this year. I don't have to deal with it this year, which is actually very nice because this is probably going to be the hardest year any of us would have to deal with political discussion with family members. We're definitely skipping any meals. There's usually a Christmas breakfast at my aunt and uncle's place. And then there is lunch at my girlfriend's parents' place. And then there is dinner at <laughs> my grandparents' place. And obviously none of those meals are happening. We haven't really decided if we're going to do some kind of drive-by thing or whatever, but we're definitely not going to be sitting down for long periods of time with any family and having any of these discussions. And I can continue to ignore all of the life site news links that my mother sends me. You're not going to do a drive-by at Grandpa Mitch McConnell's house? <laughs> <laughs> The granny, granny Callista. No, I'm, I'm sure. Cheese. I'm sure. Um, killing certain types of turtles is bad because they're endangered. <laughs> well, I, that's actually funny that we all picked a different person. I wouldn't have thought that we did, but I was going to pick the twin um, because I feel like I, I, I would say like the like to me because I am so highly engaged in politics. Like, there's not a ton of people that I could potentially surround myself with that would be like a twin in that way. Like. I think that sitting with that person who I identify with the most, but maybe is less engaged than me, maybe I can challenge them to kind of like be a little bit more engaged. Like a lot of people that I know, a lot of liberals that I know are just like, oh, Trump is a bad person. Let's just elect Biden and get him out. They don't understand how the system works. And I get that because the system is is fairly complicated Actually, I mean, really, you need to spend five minutes reading about it. But I get that people think that it's complicated, so they stay away from it. But to me, I would rather sit with people who somewhat identify with me, at least on a political level or vote the same way as me. But like, I think I can help them thrive because those are probably often the people who are most under attack from people like Andrew's family or people like some members in my family, you know, like I think that um, if I can sit with them, give them some more talking points and just drone on in their ears about politics, much like I do on this podcast, maybe we can create a little army of Democrats, you know, well, I so, think it's interesting if I'm, I'm, pick, I'm assuming at this, this dinner said dinner, it would be you and that person and then the rest of your family. So you'd have somebody <laughs> to back you up to. Right. Just, true. Yeah. True. Yeah. That's a good call. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Let's transition into the final question, which is what strategies and recommendations do you have for our listeners as they prepare for these future conversations? So um, Kirk, we're going to start with you. What is your strategy to prepare for these conversations? So as I just said, with my family, I don't have this much of an issue, but one thing I will say based upon being in group settings and politics coming up with close friends um, as opposed to family um, I think a lot of us want to, it's the holidays, you want to drink anyway. Um, maybe don't get too drunk. 
when you're having this conversation, if it is with people that you're really disagreeing with, because what I've learned over the past four years, but really the past last year is, you know, which I've said a million times on here is like, we've all said it is, you know, not reverting into that. I hate Donald Trump space, but just coming with facts and coming with knowledge and coming with being prepared with things to actually argue with. Um, and I feel like when when one is severely intoxicated, it might get hard to do so. So I would say not get entirely too drunk before you have the conversations with your family, um, which I'm sure you probably want to. This is probably hard to balance. But because um, I found myself in a situation with that with um, a friend and I think I, friends were telling me I was just going in circles of me telling them they were a bad person as opposed to actually just telling them, you know, things I'm actually equipped with. So I think come with things you're equipped with to talk about um, and don't do it in a, assuming you love your family, don't do it in, um, in an argumentative way. Um, let it happen. Let the, I'm sure the conversation will happen. Um, but yeah, so don't be too drunk and have um, information ready. That's good. Cool. Andrew, what about you? In general, because of who I am, I usually just try to disengage when I'm <laughs> in a room with 20 other people and, you know, the majority of them probably disagree with my opinions. But as I've gotten older, I've started to give less of a fuck about offending people and engaging more and speaking up when topics come up. So I would say my general strategy is is wait for the inevitable moment that a, a topic comes up and it's one that I can speak to. Cause I don't want to jump in and be like, and say something. And then, and then it's very easy for these, you know, people to have what they think are facts that have been given to them by Fox or life site news or OAN or whatever the hell stupid source they got it from. And it's very hard in a moment to refute that. So I, I wait until it's a topic that I really know about. And that's why I talked so much about climate change earlier. It's like, I do know about that and I can refute that and I could, I could shut down that conversation. But also I know I have those cousins that are in the same, not necessarily the exact same boat, but are maybe getting to the same boat where they also don't necessarily want to speak up because the the older folks in the family speak so loudly. Um, but you can kind of meet them on common ground after, you know, if you know that there's somebody who has a garden in their backyard and is trying to do a little bit better, you can find that common ground with, with climate change. And that's sort of your in, you know, maybe you're not going to go straight towards black lives matter and protests aren't riots and all that right away. But at least you start building that rapport with a couple of people. Um, at least for me, I found like, you know, if you're in a, a room with, 20 other family members, you're not going to change 20 people's minds in five minutes of dazzling facts. Yeah, I agree. I think that's good advice. Erica, what about you? Um, I always say try to speak to them in a way that makes it seem that you are not trying to come from a place of being, how do I say this? Pretentious. It's important to seem that you're really trying to have a discussion and not trying to lecture someone um, mm -hmm. my family, myself included, we're very hard headed people. And when you make something seem more of a lecture or a kind of like verbal lashing, and this is with most people, I'd say they just, we just kind of shut off. Um, so 
try to make it a real conversation, ask them questions, try to understand where they're coming from, keep that level-headedness, kind of like with Kirk said, like, don't get wasted, don't start a fight, but also admit your own faults, try to seem like a person and not this um, holier-than-thou type of individual. And most importantly, I think it's just important to at least try to find some common ground. Like there are people that I know who are super blue lives matter. I'm obviously super black lives matter. Um, And we've come to understanding on certain things. And it's really because we took the time and had a civil, real conversation As opposed to me just saying, well, this is why you're wrong. That's why you're wrong. This is why you're incorrect. Like, this is the thing that proves that your beliefs are invalid or immoral. It's not going to help everyone, anyone. They're going to get upset. They're going to shut down or they're going to start to get angry. Um, So I really think it's your approach to it. And again, trying to find some common ground. And then you, you have to move on from there, too. Like, all right, we both agree that. Um, there's proof of bias within the police department. Let me show you what that actually looks like, the extent to that, what that looks like for the people who these police precincts are supposed to serve. And then you can move on from there. And people might get frustrated, but at least when you walk out of that argument, they don't dismiss you as just like another angry liberal they say, okay, well, I didn't completely agree, but she had some good points and it was a decent conversation. I think that's good advice. And that's kind of similar to what mine is, like to help people get on common ground. I think like mine's simple. It's, I say download the ground news app because everybody hates the media, like, um, or follow them on Instagram and just show them the Instagram. If you don't want to teach your, you know, uh, older family member how to download an app, but you know, that's stressful in itself and it can lead to a whole different type of argument. But, um, I think that one thing that a lot of Americans agree on is that they are frustrated with media and the media coverage. We've talked about it on this podcast. We started this podcast by talking about Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson. I I think that the ground news app helps Help sort of let you see who and what media sources are actually in the center, you know, or it can start that conversation. I think you can just say, hey, I know you, I want to have a civil conversation with you about politics. And I want to talk to you specifically around political headlines. There's this really cool app that shows you that we're reading two totally different news sites. So you just open up the Instagram, you show them the one headline, you show them how somebody else covered it. And then you show them how somebody else covered it. Just like see what happens from there. But if you state your intention that you want to keep this civil, maybe, maybe it will stay civil. I know that that's hard, especially if you do have louder family members that are just like coming in guns blazing, um, literally. Um, But like, if you can even just say, I know you hate the media and I really want to show you this cool app that I think would also show you that I hate the media too. Um, Just because that's one thing that like is so important on their side. They believe everything is fake. And I don't think the ground news app kind of shows that. Like, I don't, I think it it, it really like highlights that um, the people that I use and that I I source are, are accurate and oftentimes in the center um, than, than other sources, but maybe that will kind of start to help you get on common ground too. So um, I think that was good. I think those are good action steps. So uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, an interview with Dr. Eric Cervini.
Welcome back. Uh, super excited to have everyone here for this interview. Um, this has been something that I've really wanted to do for a long time since I started following him this summer. Um, today, we're sitting down for uh, a quick interview and chat um, with Dr. Eric Cervini. Um, he is an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus politics and culture. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. It's the secret history of the fight for gay rights. A generation before Stonewall. And I have it right here with me because I just have to say, like, I know we're going to talk about the book, um, Eric, but this is one of those books that since I picked it up, I've not been able to stop reading it because it is one of the first times reading a historical text that I feel seen. So welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Let me welcome Thank you, you so to much podcast. for having me. I'm, I'm glad you are seen because I, I, I see you. So this is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but seriously, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I know we're going to talk more about it. Um, but I just love to kind of start every interview because we are kind of an anxiety and mental health and politically related pod- podcast. And I know you kind of dovetail into all of those things too in, in the work that you do. Um, but if it's okay to ask, I always like to ask every guest kind of where do you struggle with anxiety? How does it manifest itself in your life or does it at all? Yeah, I have a long, rich history with anxiety. (laughs) I think as many queer folks do, um, especially as someone I I grew up in central Texas and was lucky to have a very um, uh, supportive family. But growing up in any context when you're having to repress a part of your existence is um, generally not the best thing for your mental health. And so I think 18 years of, of repressing what would end up becoming uh, a, a very important part of my identity um, is, is not a good thing. And I, that's at least my hunch as to where some of my, my anxiety comes from. But, you know, I have, have seen numerous therapists over the years um, to, to, to confront it. And of course, this year, um, I, I think I would be surprised to hear anyone say that they're not dealing with anxiety uh, after everything this year has thrown at us. So um, it has been a, a very interesting ride learning about myself and my own mind, uh, especially as I, you know, uh, become more and more comfortable with my own identity and also becoming more comfortable with my profession, which is being a, a historian of LGBTQ plus uh, culture and politics. And if you're going to do that, you have to be completely authentic and, and truthful and honest about, about your identity. So it's been um, a really big learning experience and I think has helped me a lot in, in the realm of mental health as well. Yeah, I think you said a, a bunch of things that I think we could unpack in there. But, you know, the the, the point about um, kind of what this year has done to us and done to our anxiety. I mean, I was just looking at a survey recently. It was in July, 56% of people were having some issues with anxiety, which was something like a 32% increase from where it was in March. But now we're like five, six months past that mark. You know, I I just can't imagine what all of this is doing to our mental health. So I'm curious right. for you, kind of how have you been able to channel your anxiety into action between the quarantines, the lockdowns? How has it been difficult for you somewhat, um, especially as, I mean, your book's really taking off, it seems. I see a lot more people <laughs> posting about it and talking about it too, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think 
when this quarantine started, I made the joke that, you know, life in quarantine is not very different from life as, as a writer in general. Because uh, <laughs> I generally stay inside, have my head down, you know, work from home. Right. Um, don't go out too much. Spend all my time, you know, reading and writing. And so my day-to-day life has not changed. And I'll be honest, you know, I, I think I have coped with the anxiety of, the pandemic relatively well. And I have to say my theory, and I don't know if this is borne out in evidence, but at least my personal theory is that when you have struggled with anxiety your entire life and you're always expecting the worst, when the worst actually comes, it's not so surprising. Um, And (laughs) so I think that is true, at least for me on a personal level. I will say, I think the chief source of my anxiety this year was less about the pandemic and, and having to be inside and, and quarantining and more about, about the election. I think that was a very large stress of anxiety for me, especially as someone who grew up really loving this country and loving our history and studying it and, and, and having faith in, in the structure of our country. And I think realizing that a large proportion of our country just does not reflect what I think um, our country should be. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that was really scary to see how close we came to really losing everything uh, in, in terms of, of some of the ideals and um, foundations of democracy that we hold so dear. So I think that was kind of more of the existential dread that I was coping with. Um, but thankfully um, a lot of that has led up. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that has been something that I know the people who have listened to this podcast have struggled with a lot. Um, it's it's interesting, kind of the culture of a lot of people who listen to this. Um, just when talking with them, a lot of us are people that kind of thrive on saying no to plans, enjoy staying home, love binging TV. Like we love that time for ourselves. Um, and I I always describe myself kind of as like that extrovert, but I recover as a full introvert, nobody around the phone in the other room. And that has sort of been this extended piece of like, it's not necessarily the COVID stuff that really brought me anxiety this year. It was really seeing a lot of people's response to racial injustice that gave me so much anxiety about seeing all these people in my life who, who uh, I thought were really good, kind people. And then on top of that, kind of the tyrannic rule of the Trump administration, particularly in the last nine months, you know, has, has really been kind of a lot. What inspired you to write the book? Uh, well, I was an undergrad who very recently discovered that I was obsessed with, with history. Uh, at first I thought I was going to go to law school, but I took some incredible American history classes and realized there was so much that I didn't know Uh, about our past. And right around the time I needed to pick a topic for a research paper, I happened to watch the film Milk uh, about Harvey Milk and was shocked, you know, as an 18 year old that, you know, someone who considered myself uh, educated when it came to American history, that I didn't know this story. And it made me think, okay, if I didn't know this, and this is something that is just such a remarkable, important, heartbreaking story. What other stories must be out there uh, in the realm of of queer history? And the first name that popped up on our library database was Frank Kameny, uh, who historians have long regarded as as the 
grandfather of the gay rights movement, and yet there had never been a book written about him. So I, I bust down to the Library of Congress where his personal papers are, are held. Um, it's one of the largest LGBTQ plus collections in the world um, and, and fell into that rabbit hole of, of research and becoming obsessed with telling this, his story, but also the larger story of, of America in the 1960s and all the intersecting social movements that were occurring um, in telling a story about, you know, how in many ways we succeeded and how in many ways we failed um, in the years before Stonewall and especially after. So um, it was it was a great introduction to the, to the world of, of queer history. And, and uh, I'm so excited to to keep researching and learning and, and, and hopefully teaching, too. Yeah. And, and you, you shared a little bit of that on the podcast, too. I, I don't think I've ever, uh, you know, started a podcast where somebody attended a circuit party either. So. <laughs> It was my first, it was my first ever one. And uh, yeah, my, my um, back when we could actually study the contemporary queer world in, in real life, um, that was one of the, my favorite things to do is just kind of look at, all right, you know, we have these really odd phenomena uh, in, in queer culture today, like circuit parties. Where did that come from? What's the history of it? Because I knew nothing about it, even with a PhD in, uh, in queer history. Um, and I think the second episode was about the, uh, the, why are there no lesbian bars in LA? Why, how, yeah. why in the world, uh, you know, in this huge metropolis, do they not exist? And, and kind of tracking that down. And so, um, it's hopefully once we're able to kind of sit down and, and also go out and, and explore different parts of the, the queer world, um, which I hope will be back, um, more vibrant than ever, uh, after all of this, I, I definitely want to keep exploring those different fun parts of our (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, for sure well i'm curious too you know because i think you have a unique way of storytelling you know one of the the first posts i remember seeing it was somebody sharing you after kind of the the um george floyd protest started you were talking about making sure we center kind of like the pride movement on people who are black indigenous people of color, you know, right. and kind of making sure that we as a, as a community are focused on that. Um, and I know this isn't in our questions, but I'm just kind of curious no, about it. Kind of, what was, what was really making you kind of speak out about that at that time or, and, and, and making sure that you as a leader in the, in the queer community, as a historian of the queer community, were making sure that our message was on point. Cause it was very, it was the first time I saw somebody who looked like me saying what you were saying, right. you know? Right. Um, so I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, and I'll be honest, a big part of my mission, my personal mission in in terms of the book of all my social media presence is kind of luring in people who do look like us, who are who may be male, white, cis, gay, um, and 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 have life is pretty good for us now, right? We can get married, we're, we're protected, quote unquote. Um, and people I believe are getting a bit complacent and forgetting the origins of our movement uh, going beyond not just the AIDS crisis, which is very relevant right now also, but going even further into the foundations of, of who we are as, as a community. Um, you know, and especially you mentioned George Floyd, those, the first, you know, civil uprisings, you know, the, 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 the you know, um, you could call them riots, right? That, that were occurring, you know, in Minneapolis and elsewhere, we, it's very easy to say, oh, that's like totally unacceptable, like destroying pu- private property, et cetera. 
but then you, you know, are making plans to march in a gay pride parade mm-hmm. that is celebrating a violent act of resistance at Stonewall, which was, you know, four nights of rioting, of right. destroying private property. And so I started to see this disconnect between, you know, people who were either distancing themselves or not speaking up um, after, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, all these different people who, who saw their own experiences as, as separate um, from those. And, you know, I hoped to take people by the shoulders and say, hello, we've, we've, we've seen this before, you know, this was, this was us. Um, and not only that, but we have so many of our rights, um, and successes in, in, in terms of civil rights, because we borrowed from the black freedom movement, specifically the tactics of, of direct protest, of, uh, civil lawsuits, every step of the road, we were borrowing from the black freedom movement. And yet we've done little, to nothing <laughs> historically to return that favor. Right. Um, and so, you know, as we're celebrating, you know, whether it was the Bostock decision, uh, protecting us in employment from dis- employment discrimination um, to, you know, this, the relatively successful campaign of Pete Buttigieg, right. We should be celebrating right. these things, but also saying we have these successes because of the black freedom movement. And, and now we have a moral obligation to be supporting it vocally. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, it, it really was, you know, and it has continued to be a, a great reminder for, for me. Um, and is that kind of, as you were sort of learning that history, is that something you learned while you were doing research for the Deviance War? Or is that something you just kind of learned as a, as a student and doctorate of, of history? Um, a bit of both, because the, the, the book really is the result of my, my PhD dissertation. Um, but I will say when I started, I didn't think that I would be having to tell the story of Black Freedom Movement of, you know, Bayard Rustin, an uh, uh, openly gay Black man who was the chief architect of, of the March on Washington in 63, right? When, when you start writing about gay rights, you don't think, oh, you know, let's, let's take a second, you know, and and other historians, I think are guilty of this too. I certainly was when I first started my research of saying, okay, where did they get the idea to march in front of the white house in 1965, right? Right. Four years before Stonewall. Well, you know, only a few months before that they were marching on the March on Washington for black freedom. Right. And so when you really take the time uh, to say, okay, what, what can we attribute our successes to every single time it is the black freedom movement. And so I think it's the responsibility of all historians to start making these connections right between different movements and not just, you know, uh, people who look like us because we're the ones, you know, Frank Kameny, who's the the main character in the book. Yeah. He was a a gay white guy who kind of looked like us and, you know, he came from a place of, of privilege. And I would posit that his chief contribution was acting as a Xerox machine, right? Copying different elements of the Black Freedom Movement and applying it to uh, what the t- at the time was called the homophile movement or the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement. So when you start really telling the story of, okay, what was influencing these early activists as they were making these really historic moves, you have to tell the story of Bayard Rustin, right? Of, of Montgomery, right? Of, of Greensboro in 1960, every step of the way, you know, black is beautiful. Just a few years later became gay is good. Um, yeah. It just, it happens over and over and over again. And you see it in the book, hopefully. Um, and I think that's something that we just have to be reminded of constantly as our celebrations of pride become more and more removed 
from history and from protest. And I think finally this year, I hope it started to click that actually are the fates of, of both our movements are not only aligned, but also intersecting. Yeah, I, I love the way that you said that. And I think there's there's an importance in the power of words too. Like, um, because as, as you're speaking, I'm immediately thinking, okay, how can we make sure that this is a message that we all know how to not just share an infographic about, but talk about, you know, yeah. um, as, a, as a creator of infographics, you know, how can I make sure that people are also having dialogue? And that's, that's kind of the theme of this, this episode a little bit too, you know, is, is as people are kind of approaching their holiday Zooms, if they're going to have tough conversations with family, I'm sure I know some people listening to this are going to get together in person, although I would, of course, caution them against doing that. You know, how do you recommend that they talk about some of this stuff with people, whether it be history, whether it be allyship, especially as it relates to queer people? Because, I mean, even in my own family where there are three queer people, at least three at at every single family event, there's still off color jokes that are made. There's still jokes that maybe I could step in on and even defend myself, you know? So I'm curious as to kind of your thoughts, because I've seen you share things on Instagram where you've been talking directly with family about some of this. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like uh, a lot of my extended family um, are Trump supporters and I'm still grappling with that. Um, I, I, to be, to be frank, have not spoken to a a lot of them um, since the election. I think just because I was so and am so distraught by, by how close it was um, and the the magnitude of the support that, that this administration received despite everything that happened and how I think crystal clear um, what its motivations were. And so I'm not quite sure. And I think that's something I would stress, right? We started talking about mental health and and bringing in self-care is, you know, a lot of us worked really hard this year, right? And and have been through a lot emotionally. And I think it would, I would stress um, that, you know, I think would be hypocritical to argue otherwise that it's okay not to have these conversations or not to try to like change hearts and minds at every single dinner table. Um, and it's okay if, if you know, you, you can't even talk to these individuals and don't let them guilt you. Um, because I think a lot of us feel under attack, right? Because this <laughs> administration was so clear about what it wanted for, for this country and for, for marginalized people. Um, and so I don't think it's up to the victims of, of this persecution, of this, these attacks, relentless attacks, um, to be the ones to be having these conversations. That said, you know, I, I think when if you are willing to or able to, I think keeping it in terms of, of your own feelings and keeping it in terms of your own experiences and what you yourself have witnessed and experienced in your own life is, is very powerful because you can't argue with that, right? If you say, you know, I feel you know, lesser because of the things that this administration and, 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 you know, whether it's the vice president or the president himself have said about, you know, gay rights or, you know, trans rights, um, you know, that hurts me regardless of whether they agree on a policy level, at least they'll know that, you know, this is actually a matter of, of your identity being attacked. Um, So when I think, I think when you keep it in those terms, it tends to be a bit more, productive rather than saying, oh, well, you know, the Green New Deal, is, let's talk about all the different right. 
Love the Green New Deal, but yeah. you know, when you keep it about yourself and your own emotions and, and, and feelings, um, that tends to be less arguable. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's where I have found some success recently. For people who are listening, I do think that for those people you know who are not going to budge and they're only just going to attack you, I think it's okay for you to distance a little bit, you know, like I, but I think where I've had a lot of success is kind of those people in the middle um, by just saying mm-hmm. simple things exactly like you said, or people in the middle, but, you know, like, I guess people who aren't as strongly Republican, I guess, as others, you know, just saying this kind of hurts me. This makes me feel unwelcome. Uh, you know, whether he passes a policy or not, this is the dialogue that I'm getting. And it's it's hard to argue with some of those feelings because they don't have that lived experience either. I'm curious to what recommendations you have, you know, thinking about active allyship, learning or organizations to support. What are some of the things that you do daily in, in your life to make sure that you're being a good ally? I, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, especially gay men are used to having allies, right, rather than being allies. And I yeah, that's a novel concept for a lot of us, right, who, who have, of course, been through a lot, you know, if you've grown up in, in the South like me and, you know, you're, you're used to wanting allies rather than being one, we have to start practicing, right? You know, and it's something I'm working on is a part of being an ally is, is making mistakes. And, you know, as I've become more vocal, um, I think, you know, I, I wish I had been more vocal my entire life, but of course, seeing you know, uh, uh, the footage, whether it's of George Floyd, you know, the facts of the case of Breonna Taylor, you know, and, and, and taking part in some of the marches, you know, I, I do feel radicalized. I do feel the moral obligation to be speaking out more. But with speaking out comes uh, inevitably making mistakes and maybe saying wrong things. I, I think there's also a tendency, of course, with <laughs> with with white gay men of, of centering ourselves and our own experiences and making it about our allyship rather than using the privilege that we have, right, uh, indisputably <laughs> because of our skin color, right. <laughs> economic status, um, or, you know, social media following, using that to elevate others, right, rather than making it about ourselves, and in allyship. And I think that's something that, that I've been learning and, and I've been practicing and it's hard, right? When you make a mistake and someone calls you out or calls you in, getting used to saying, thank you, right? Thank you for, for teaching me uh, a, a, about how to be a better ally. I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. Uh, and, and that's okay. And just moving on and not getting better, bitter, not getting defensive, um, those are very natural reactions uh, when, when you do make a mistake as an ally, maybe you say something or use the wrong wording, right? I think I, I, I early on, you know, as a historian, where it kind of, language always changes. Right, um, right, yeah. But, you know, one example, and, you know, I'll be totally transparent. One example is, you know, it's preferred um, if you're talking about, you know, antebellum America, to say enslaved person rather than slave, right? Mm-hmm. And I totally forgot, right? I should have known better. And I just said slave. Uh, but, and someone, you know, very, very kindly mentioned in my comments, um, you know, hey, just heads up, like it, it should be enslaved person. And, you know, my first gut reaction is to say, oh, you know, like, well, in, in England where I went to grad school, like they don't, they don't say that. Right, right. Like, you know, and, and I had to kind of force myself to say, oh my gosh, 
you're totally right. And I commented, thank you. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I wish, I, and there are plenty of other examples like that. So I think I want to normalize people, especially queer folks, especially queer folks of privilege of, of being wrong and, and, and owning it and moving on because that's real allyship. I think. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think, I, I think so too. That That's one of the things that I've been challenging myself to learn because when I do get critiqued, whether it's on my Instagram and my personal life with an infographic, I create the first reaction sometimes because something maybe is your baby, you put it out there in the world. It is to get a little bit defensive, you know, and then you really do have to, to think, be like, thank you. Even if you know your defense and be like, I'm going to come back to this when I'm like not feeling fully attacked. Like it's okay to take a second, you know, and process and think it Uh because oftentimes as somebody who talks without thinking a lot, we do make mistakes. Where can people follow you online? You know, and where can they purchase the book? How can they stay connected with you? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, probably best bet is, is Instagram. It's just my name, Eric Cervini, C-E-R-V as in Victor, I-N-I. Um, and there's, you know, the link there to get the book. I would I highly recommend everyone to shop local independent bookshops are really struggling right now. So, um, I, I really encourage people to, to support their local bookshop if they can. Well, I really appreciate you joining. Of course, you know, I, 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 I will give a personal testimonial for anybody listening, uh, just to make sure that they, they follow you on Instagram. Um, it has really been a joy. Um, I also think I recently started following your partner and the makeup tutorials. I'm in, is it Adam? Is that? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I'll tell him. Stay tuned. It's only getting started. Like, um, it yeah. is. I mean, does he have experience with it? Cause it's no, like, so like, good. The amazing thing is he, you know, like so many of us are just kind of stuck at home. Um, I decided, well, I just kept working, but he decided, <laughs> he, he decided that he was going to learn drag and he's, you know, taking every opportunity and when he, you know, teaches himself to kind of bring people along with the process. And I think it's so, so admirable and he's, he's a hero. So yeah. Someday I'll, put, I'll have him put me in drag, but I, 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 already know. I need to do it like with a, with an audience, you know, like, like at an actual party or something. So I'm gonna have to wait. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was going to say like, I know that this is already happening. So like, I'm sure he's oh, planning God. it. So it'll be, it'll definitely be televised. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to finish the book. So thank you for stopping by the pod. Yeah. Thanks for all you do. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome back. This is the end of the Let's Unpack That episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Eric Cervini. Um, I certainly did. Uh, he's awesome. Highly recommend picking up his book. Um, but to close out this podcast, because this is our Christmas episode and everybody on this podcast celebrates Christmas in some way, um, one or another, whether commercial or religious, um, I wanted to ask you guys all what you want for Christmas. Um, and Andrew, you're up first. I'm up first. I want time. The dichotomy of this year is that... I've been home all the time, yet like my job will not fucking quit. Like I'm working six to seven days a week. I work at night. I work on the weekends. I've worked through holidays and taken PTO days and ended up working anyway. I just need some fucking time off from like literally everything. Are you going to get it? I'm going to get a little bit of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll probably get like a week off. As he's like okay. doing all this for free. His bonus is in the mail. Just kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's a bag of poop. <laughs> Erica, what's your uh, Christmas present? 
What I wish for for Christmas is a bitch to fucking try me. I'm just kidding. I just really want to say that. (laughs) If I could have anything for Christmas, I would ask for just to like hug my friends. I mean, obviously today, like I got bad news and it was just hard that we've all lost like the physical connection of friendship, um, which sounds like some Hallmark bullshit, but it's true. (laughs) It is. And so I guess that really means that I would love to have that sweet science juice injected into my body so that I could go back to living a semi-normal life. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, I want to have people over. My one after we get injected. Uh, Kirk, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I was going to say, like, there's a bracelet that I want, but now I feel like an asshole because everyone's like... Um, I I will say one of them is to physically meet Andrew because we've never physically met. I don't need to touch me, but I want to meet you. And, um, and for all of us to be together. It's kind of like Erica's, but like a not... I don't mean about like my my friends overall i mean about our our group and to do a podcast in person yes that's because we've been i don't know if people know this but we've been unable to do that obviously since we started this leg of the pod during quarantine so that'll be a christmas gift i hope we're able to get early in 2021 possibly Well, mine is similar. Um, I would like anyone who is listening to this to like, subscribe, share, comment, and review because, girl, (laughs) the listeners are going down post-politics. So if you made it this far in this episode, give us a like, give us a follow, tell at least one friend to listen to it, and then give us feedback. If you like this episode, if you hated this episode, let us know. So that's my Christmas gift. And this has been another episode of Let's Unpack That. (laughs) 